Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Throughout the story of Scripture, it is the Lord who delivers his people from their enemies. This deliverance is not about victory in the conventional sense, where one group of human beings claims victory against another. On the contrary, it is God in his unparalleled position of strength who puts down all sides, leaving everyone, under the pressure of his might, free from conflict with each other, delivered from the hands of their enemies. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 74 to 75. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 452 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Each time we come across these passages, Richard, that take us back to slavery in Egypt and deliverance from bondage and the question of fear and whom we serve— I can't help but go back to (laughs) that old favorite. You know how you want to play your favorite songs every once in a while? You walk into a bar and there's a jukebox. Do they still have jukeboxes? I don't know if they do that anymore. Everything is digital. But you want to put a coin in the jukebox and play your favorite tune. I'm going to start today's podcast with an oldie but a goodie. Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. I'm going to pause for a minute. Because you think in your philosophical shackling of the Bible that this is talking about Jesus. In some situations, it certainly applies to Jesus in the story. But in functional truth, it applies to whoever is in the story in a position of shepherding by meditating the Dabarim of God. And I use the word meditating because that is the word that is often translated or interpreted from the Hebrew in the English versions of the Hebrew text to refer to the discipline of uttering in the midnight watch 
the words of the Torah, let me continue with Psalm 2, the oldie but goodie. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today have I fathered you. And it goes on. I'll stop there. I could read the whole psalm, but we're not in church, so I'll stop there, Dr. B. The point in bringing this text up at the beginning of today's episode is to remind everyone that it is God who laughs at our might and laughs at the might of our enemies. And that is our hope because we are no threat to him and our enemies are no threat to him. He is the one of whom we should be afraid. And in our fear, we look to him and we become small and he speaks. But he speaks to us by putting his mouth on the lips of his anointed. And here we are, here we are in the beginning of Luke, and right now the one speaking to us is Zacharias. When he no longer puts his words in the mouth of Zacharias, and he asks someone else to speak, Zacharias, who is not the reference ultimately, will no longer be the reference. Just read Deuteronomy 34. What happened to Moses? But while Zacharias is in the position to speak, you have to submit to the words on his lips, which means you have to submit to Zacharias. But whom do you fear? We asked that question many times on this podcast series, Richard. As you say, oldies but goodies that we're drawing from. I mean, this is why people try to understand why we have to study the Old Testament. If we're going to study the New Testament, we're Christians. How well do we actually need to know the Old Testament, et cetera, et cetera. But we keep coming back to this idea that is introduced and is well-developed in the Old Testament before there's any New Testament. And that's this idea that it is the Lord who frees you from your enemies doesn't matter who your enemies are. It doesn't matter if they're mortal or divine. It doesn't matter if it's nature itself. It's the Lord who delivers you from your enemies, which means he is the most powerful. In Psalm 2, the kings of the earth and the princes want to remove the shackles themselves and cast away the ropes themselves. If they can do that, that means God's not the most powerful anymore right? Because it's just like when Brutus ties down Popeye and he can't move, well, then once Popeye manages to get spinach in his mouth, he can pop the shackles and the ropes and beat up Brutus, and then that's the end. And he gets olive oil and the end, okay? Because Popeye, when he gets the spinach, is more powerful than Brutus, and he can't hold him down. He can't be shackled. So Popeye is very predictable, 
Olive Oil knows that he loves her very much and he's always going to take care of Olive Oil in the end. But with the Lord, the Lord makes his own decisions. We're not his girlfriend. In Hosea chapter 1, we understand exactly how that relationship works. He's merciful towards his wife, Gomer, in spite of her continuous lack of faithfulness towards him. He doesn't make it easy for her, doesn't make it nice for her, doesn't make sure that she has flowers on the weekend. In fact, sometimes is allowing her to suffer terribly. But even when she suffers terribly, it's because the Lord is in control, not because somebody bested him and someone took more control. And this was the problem that Moses saw in the wilderness when the Lord said, you know what, I'm just going to destroy this people and I'm going to raise up a people from you. And then Moses said, ah, yeah, but if you do that, Everyone's going to say that they were just killed in the wilderness and you couldn't save them. And the Lord said, all right, you're right. I have to let them live because someone might think that there's a more powerful force in the universe than me. Being delivered out of the hands of one's enemies into the hands of the Lord is not 100% good news. It's better than being under the enemies. The enemies are lousy. But the Lord is not your sweetheart. At least it allows us to focus on one law, on one word, on one teaching in the end that we must obey, no matter who is the pretender to the throne of God. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So last week, we pointed out that through the instruction of the Gospel of Luke, which is unfolding in our ears and will, God willing, unfold over the next several months, we will come to be instructed. I don't even want to say come to understand because that's too Hellenistic. We will come to be instructed that we have no enemies because on the one hand, we are being taught by the Gospel of Luke that other people are neighbors to whom we are commanded to be neighborly, period. They're not your enemy. They are your neighbor, and you must act accordingly. This is taken from the teaching of the Apostle Paul that those who dwell with you in the land are not different than you. You are not exceptional. This was reflected in Elizabeth's sharing what she received with her friends and relatives in the land earlier in Luke. Paul didn't pull this out of thin air. Paul heard it in the instruction, the story of the law and the prophets. And that's why we began with Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 is explaining to you that you are not exceptional, that you, like those whom you consider your enemies, should all be afraid of the one who can dispense with all of you. Psalm 2 is the great equalizer. The only one who stands out in Psalm 2 is the anointed, 
But the anointed doesn't stand out as a flesh and blood person. The anointed stands out because the anointed is gifted to hold the dabarim, the scroll with the words of Elohim. How many times must this be repeated until people really hear it? That what distinguishes the anointed is the scroll of God's instruction. It is the law that is set before you that distinguishes you. So what do you do in the letters of Paul, O Israel, when suddenly the same instruction that was gifted to you has now been gifted to the Gentiles? What does that mean? You want to claim you're special because of your religious customs or your food or the clothing you wear? What is it that makes you exceptional? Your flag? Your music? What? Nothing makes you exceptional in Psalm 2. What binds us together is all of us share the same fear of the one who is mighty and has done great things, as Mary says in the Gospel of Luke. The one that Psalm 2 explains has the power to dispense with all of us. As we hear in Exodus, with the blast of his nostrils. So who's exceptional? Do you think that you should or should not fear Zacharias because of something Zacharias says or does? Do you think that anything Pharaoh says or does should have any bearing on your attitude toward Pharaoh? Who is your reference? Who is your reference? The one who has power over the living and the dead and who can dispense with everyone is telling you that the ones whom you feared are not your enemies. They are your neighbors. So what are we talking about? Tricky text. Yeah, I mean, beginning with this word, fearlessly, which is the first word in verse 74. Afovos ek hiros. Fearlessly from the hand being delivered, is how we hear it in Greek. And, you know, this is the second time we hear about being delivered from the hand of our enemies. That was also in verse 71. So this is clearly an important theme we have here. But I like how what you're saying fits with what this text is saying, because if you have enemies and your enemies can't do anything to you and you aren't afraid of them, what makes them your enemy then at that point? Logically, they can do nothing to you. They can take nothing from you. And the one who is your master masters you and them, then what are they but a neighbor? Now, in Luke, of course, later on we'll learn that the point is not whether they are your neighbor or not. It's whether you act neighborly towards them, as you said, Father. It's about us acting neighborly. It's about us living in a neighborly way towards them, because this is what we're judged by. Because if we're not afraid, then we're fine. I mean, in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the other ones are afraid of becoming unclean. 
And perhaps the Samaritan would have been afraid that he spent all his money on doctors for this wounded person. But he wasn't afraid of losing the money either. Once the fear is gone, then there's only hope left. And you can fill that with love, as we've talked about in Paul's letters. So if we look at the syntax of this whole section, it's really complicated in Greek, actually. You got you and I spent like 10 minutes trying to figure out where the dang verb was, but that happens in Greek sometimes. So we've got this whole section from 68 through 75, where it's all about what God does. And we have more than once that God is fulfilling the oath that he swore and taking us out of the hands of our enemies. But here I love it because it says explicitly, fearlessly, out of the hands of our enemy, out of the hands of enemies being saved in order to serve him. And we've Father Paul talked about this when we were nothing and now we're a little bit of a thing. And we can still draw on his words that the reason why the Lord saved his people from Egypt was not so that they could be free. It was so that they could be free from Pharaoh in order to be his slaves, in order to serve him. That is the goal, not freedom with no master. Okay, So anyone who would say, oh, don't worry about the wrath of God, I can help you, these people are trying to sell you something. The whole point is that the Lord's wrath will come, and anyone who says that they can save you from that wrath is claiming power that God himself doesn't have. That is, to turn away God's wrath. No human being has that. So the best a human being can say is, let me teach you, let me warn you about the wrath of God, and what you might do in order to be obedient before it comes. Which you can follow or not follow, it's up to you. Hopefully you're prepared. But if I've done my job, I warned you. You can follow it or not. But the point here is that the Lord is the one who delivered us out of the hands of our enemies so that fearlessly we might serve him because we have no reason to fear enemies anymore. And this is the oath that he swore, and this is the mercy that he gave to our fathers and his holy covenant. And this is how this section follows in the line, follows the narrative of what we've been seeing all along in this chapter. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So one of the difficulties, once again, of just reading in English is it would be so easy for any of us to start talking about holiness. But this word in Greek, osiotiti and osiotiti in holiness, does not correspond to the Hebrew kodesh. It occurs only twice in the New Testament, you and I, Richard, were talking before the episode. It corresponds to tamim in Hebrew, vis-a-vis -vis the Septuagint. But in the New Testament Greek, it connects Luke to Ephesians chapter 4. And in both examples, it has to do with oneness or completeness. Obviously, in Ephesians, and we've talked at length about this, you are in chains, bound to each other, bound to the rule, the command of the gospel. 
one body under the instruction of Paul's letter. You have to walk according to that instruction. So here in Luke, it is en osiotiti in the sense that you are now hearing the rule from the mouth of Zacharias who is being compelled to speak the words that he refused to speak. So now he is walking correctly, so to speak, and now you must do the same. And that is the righteousness that is the gift. And so you don't go before the presence of God, an opion. We hear that word so often in the Greek text of the liturgy, and the way people hear it, they think of themselves walking to liturgy to go before the presence of God as though they did something. Zacharias didn't do anything. Like Jonah, he did everything in his power to avoid doing what he was supposed to do. And he was brought into submission and compelled to do what he must do and what must be done. And only then, when he was compelled, do we talk about righteousness. It's not what we do, it's what we are commanded to do that makes the righteousness functional. So it's no credit to Zacharias or to his addressees in the story that they are brought before the presence of the Lord and declared righteous. Because in Ephesians, you are bound in chains as one body. It's not a free choice. It's not, <laughs> you know, I keep going back to Father Paul's famous joke. It's not a Hallmark card, Richard. Though it sounds like it, that's not what it is. It's a very uncomfortable verse. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.